Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our Acts series. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 20, the ending half. And once again, good morning. Oh, man. <laughs> good morning. And for those of you guys online, good morning to you as well. Uh, as we regularly do, we want to begin our time with the reading of the text together. And, and as we read, this is somewhat of a longer passage, um, but uh, as we read, I want you to pay careful attention, careful attention to the exhortations of Paul and how he exemplifies the heart of Jesus, the chief shepherd. So as, as we go through this text, keep your eye out for those things, and please follow along with me, starting in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. It begins this way. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews, to Greeks, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Please join with me in prayer.
Dear God, we come before you this morning confessing that it is only through the blood of Jesus that we can stand before you today. We thank you for passages like the psalm that we read earlier that reminds us that you are our great Lord, the rock of our salvation. And because you spoke everything into existence, it all belongs to you. As the text says, teach those who choose to harden their hearts this morning. Teach those to love you more, to know you more, to know your ways, to know the truth that can only come from a relationship with you. And as we often do, we pray for our neighbors, both locally and globally, who have not yet experienced the joy of singing praises to your name, those who have not yet placed their trust in Christ. We pray that they are drawn to know Jesus, the rock of our salvation. We pray for our children here this morning that you've blessed us with. We pray that they come to know Jesus at a young age. We pray that you spare them from seasons of rebellion. Please grow in them a desire to know you. And we pray for all those serving all over campus this morning, upstairs, downstairs. Lord, may you bring them again fresh joy in their service this morning. For those that are experiencing the loss of a loved one or friend, bring them comfort. For the hurting, for the weak, may your peace, may your grace and strength abound. Lord, we pray for those that are battling sickness and those recovering. We pray that, you find, that they find comfort, Lord, that only comes through knowing you more and more. For all the family members and medical staff who are caring for them, we pray that you may be their strength, their source of joy and rest. Give them in times of frustration, times maybe where they feel defeated. Bring them fresh joy. Bring them strength that only comes from you. Lord, we're thankful for the middle school students, the high school students, and the college students that join us here, Lord. I pray uh, that you carry them through the struggles that they face day to day. May you continually draw them to know your grace, and we pray for those who are married, young families, uh, especially those who are struggling in their marriages. May you grant them wisdom. Reveal to them maybe their sin. Guide them to your grace. Restore their joy in you. And again, we pray for our young singles and our college students. May you sustain them, Lord, during stressful times. Delight them in knowing your nearness. And Lord, for those who are new, maybe visiting us for the first time here, Lord, we pray that you guide them to experience the immeasurable joy of salvation this morning. We pray that you guide us as we study your word. We pray all these things in the power of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, good morning. If this is your first time joining us, we're glad to have you. Uh, we've been journeying through the book of Acts in this series entitled Becoming His Church. And we started this series in the beginning of the year in January, and we've journeyed through chapter by chapter, stepping verse by verse together, and we've witnessed Luke's record of the birth and the development of his church, of God's church. It's important that we always address what is the goal of this series. The goal of this series is to become his church the way he designed it to be through the study of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And something that we've often seen in Acts are speeches. Some are addressed to non-Christians. We see this in Acts 13, 14, 17. But other speeches are more public defense speeches. And we're going to see that from Acts 22. 22 through 26. But amongst all these speeches, the one here in Acts 20 is very unique. More specifically, uh, this speech is called a farewell speech. 
and it's Paul's only speech to exclusively speak to, address to Christians. We know that this is Paul's words because the language is consistent with his other letters, specifically ones uh, called the pastoral epistles. Two of the books share a lot of parallels uh, to the uh, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. And what does he talk about in this farewell address? In a sense, Paul is summarizing the heart of pastoral ministry when he urges this young Ephesian pastor to keep watch over his life and his teaching for the good of his soul and for the good of others. One of the important terms that we come across in this passage is this word, this term, elder. It's important to address what it is. What, what is an elder? Who is this referring to? Put simply, maybe oversimplifying it a little bit, but put simply, Paul is referring to pastors, overseers, men of God who are spiritually mature and called by God to oversee his church. See, Jesus used this helpful illustration, which Paul references to several times here in this passage, that a pastor is much like a shepherd. Because not only does he oversee the flock, but he leads them and guides them to food. Notice how I didn't say that the shepherd's role is to feed them. There may be occasions for that. However, a shepherd's ultimate task is to safely guide them to pasture, where they may ultimately feed themselves under the safety of his watch and attentive care. So using this metaphor, someone else, Peter. Peter goes a step further with the same metaphor from Christ to explain that every under-shepherd answers to the chief shepherd. We see this in 1 Timothy, or 1 Peter chapter 5. Listen to the words of Peter. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In this metaphor, Peter is explaining that every pastor's ultimate aim should be to practice great, some people say intense, care, with the love of God and be God-honoring examples to prepare God's people for Christ's promised return. Again, every under-shepherd serves under the authority of the chief shepherd, Christ. This is exactly why Paul calls for the elders of Ephesus to come. He wanted to give them one final reminder of their mission and point them again to the mission giver, Christ. See, we live in a time where Paul's instruction to aspiring pastors is still very, very, very much needed. Today, many people lead in the church without a shepherd's heart. Again, today, many people lead in the church without a shepherd's heart. One of my seminary professors told me how many churches in the past 40 years have dangerously lowered their standards when searching for a new pastor. And I know of several churches on island, if you're listening to this, if those are your churches, please pay attention. My seminary professor warned he said, for these churches, finding qualified men according to Scripture, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 5, to Titus chapter 1, it, it just proved too difficult. So, instead of following Scripture, they dissolved the robust interview process into only two interview questions. Can you guess what they are? How many times have you been married? What seminary did you go to? 
And if there was more than one candidate, who has the PhD? This would imply that they knew the requirements instructed in Scripture, and yet they said, yep, this should sum it up. In the end, a lot of these churches, they end up with a professor on the platform who is often unfit to care for God's people. A hired hand who is not their shepherd, who doesn't take ownership of the sheep, who flees when he sees danger in-house or when he sees dangerous wolves coming. I've seen it too often. I want to share another example. Much like this example that I just shared, I know of some churches on island who attempt to train young people to pastors simply because they would perform well on a a platform. They'd look good on a stage. These leaders will hand-select these big personalities, the comedians, the influencers, the well-dressed, and they'd ask him the simple question, have you considered ministry? Then, these selected few will then be placed in classrooms where they will learn how to look the part, act the part, how to tell the right stories that will make the listeners laugh cry on cue, or respond in just the right ways. They will then be trained with the latest strategies to generate the right crowd and produce a sustainable amount of followers, but they will not be trained to do ministry off the platform. One of these pastors in training spoke during a worship service at the school I once worked at. And he certainly could hold the audience's attention. Listen to this. He introduced himself and had the whole school practice chanting his name. After talking about himself, telling a few culturally relevant jokes to relate to the students, and sharing a story about how he discovered his church, He read two passages of Scripture from the Bible and closed in prayer. This was the fruit of two years of pastoral training at his church. It's because of Lord's standards like these that many lead in the church without a shepherd's heart. Therefore, again, Paul's farewell speech serves as a timeless instruction for aspiring pastors and a great instruction for how Christians seek healthy hearts and healthy churches. The title of the sermon this morning, again, is Formed by the Heart of the Shepherd. And again, we'll be in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. What are my goals? If you are not a Christian here this morning or listening online, again, I am glad that you're here. If you're exploring the Christian faith, looking for understanding, I want to encourage you that studying about His church through His Word, it will help you learn a lot about Jesus. If you're not a Christian, my hope this morning is that you will not only witness Paul's great love for Jesus and his church, but that you will personally be drawn to Jesus through the power of the gospel this morning. I'm going to turn to the Christian now. Christian, my hope for you this morning is that you will have a greater understanding of how pastors ought to serve that you yourself will also examine your own heart and your love for his church. So for this, I want to offer three characteristics that describe the pastor's relationship with his church. 
This section in chapter 20 picks up where we left off last week and tells us how Paul demonstrated his love for the church as he says farewell to these Ephesian pastors. Paul knew that God was leading him to minister in Jerusalem, and in his obedience, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus. Why does Paul avoid going back to Ephesus? Wednesday night, we talked about a few possibilities. Quick summary and recap, what are the possible reasons that Paul sailed past Ephesus? Perhaps, some scholars think that maybe he was carrying a large sum of money, a relief offering for the Jerusalem church, but he remembers the opposition. He remembers the riot. So perhaps he felt safer being in Miletus rather than in Ephesus. Perhaps he was just short on time before the ship was about to set sail again, especially since he was trying to get Jerusalem, the text says in verse 16, on the day of Pentecost. But like Matt shared these past couple weeks, I am more convinced that Paul's love for the church in Ephesus was what kept him from going there. Man, I love JT. Uh, I love how JT worded it on Wednesday night. He said, Paul knew that if he went there, if he went to Ephesus, he wouldn't want to leave. Paul didn't want to risk delay in Ephesus due to more fruitful ministry with the people there. Remember, Paul served the people in Ephesus for three years, living among them, identifying with them, pouring himself out to them, training up these pastors, serving them the gospel and loving them towards Christ-likeness. Paul cherished his time ministering there. And again, Paul knew that God was leading him to minister in Jerusalem, and in his faithful obedience to God, Paul decided to set sail past Ephesus. And yet, out of his great love for the church there in Ephesus and all the believers and his concern for them, he was compelled to meet one final time with the church leaders to give his final exhortations. For this reason, he urgently called the elders of the church to come meet with him in Miletus, roughly 30 miles south of Ephesus. This would have taken these men about two to four days to finally gather with Paul. And once they arrive, Paul shares these opening words. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with trials. The first point from the text is that under-shepherds consistently guard their personal character. We see this in verses 17 through 27, that under-shepherds consistently guard their personal character. See, for Paul, the goal is not here for pastoral perfection, but careful watch. Pastors must guard the faithful consistency of their character. C.H. Spurgeon captures this thought well in his book, Lectures to My Students, and he writes to young aspiring pastors these words. We have all heard the story of the man who preached so well and lived so badly that when he was on the platform, everybody, he, uh, everybody said, he ought never come down again. But when he was off stage, they all declared he ought never go up again. Too many preachers forget to serve God when they're off the stage. Their lives are negatively inconsistent. Abhor, dear brothers, the thought of being clockwork ministers who are wound up by temporary influences, men who are only ministers for the time being under the stress of the hour ministering, but cease to be ministers when they descend the pulpit stairs. True ministers are always ministers. It is a horrible thing to be an inconsistent minister. So much weight 
so much truth that Spurgeon spoke of, and this was nearly 200 years ago. And perhaps you know of pastors like this. You can picture them in your minds. (laughs) Men who speak well on a platform, on a stage, but often lack consistent character off the stage. You know, you, you need not experience this to understand the damage this type of unguarded character does. This is something that Paul understood was a danger even in the first century church. So he uses his personal examples to explain that faithful under-shepherds, again, need to consistently guard their personal character. Perhaps, some scholars believe, perhaps he was also defending himself against the claims of the false teachers who wanted nothing more than to tear down, to attack Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So for these reasons, Paul bookends, again in the very front, the very end, he bookends his speech with numerous examples that the Ephesians both identify and remember his character, his heart. He begins so with this emphatic phrase, you yourselves know, you you yourselves know my heart. And he does this in order to communicate the closeness of their friendship that he knew them, and they knew Paul. It was ever since the first day that he set foot in Asia. There's this saying that shepherds smell like their sheep. I like that phrase a lot. It seems to communicate that the quality of a pastor is determined by how much he identifies, spends time with, and closely lives alongside his people. You see, pastors know their people, and the people know their pastors. It is a shame to see celebrity pastors, or pastors that might think that they're celebrities, allow themselves to hide behind their office desks during the week, and after they descend from their platforms, they're gone. As one pastor comments, pastors must find ways to be in people's lives and avoid merely being the sages on the stages. Paul identified with the people in Ephesus in such a way that Paul could say, you yourselves know my heart. This is the foundational basis that the rest of his speech is built on. He goes on to explain that he served the Lord with all humility with tears and faithfulness through trials. His faithfulness was displayed in the manner that he taught. And the focus here is not the content, but his practice. Whether publicly or from house to house, Paul would confidently say to the others, you yourselves know that I did not withhold anything. I did not withhold anything in my teaching. Paul did not teach a partial gospel. He taught it all, and he taught it to all. Look at the words Paul uses in this text. He says he proclaimed the gospel to both Jews and to Greeks. See, pastors must not be selective about their message nor their audience. Pastors must teach the whole plan of God from creation to sin, to God's promise, to Christ's fulfillment, and Christ's church, and they must share it with all. Paul also explained how he lived according to the Holy Spirit. You might have noticed, but there's somewhat of an odd phrase here in verse 22, that Paul said that he was constrained by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean that Paul was constrained by the Spirit? Paul is using this figurative expression to imply that he knows the Spirit has been leading him to Jerusalem. The grammar of this Greek word communicates that this understanding has been fixed for some time. Paul is explaining that he is going to Jerusalem out of his obedience to God, knowing full well that imprisonment and afflictions will probably await him. But nonetheless, He will 
obey God's leading because he treasured Christ above all, and he wanted others to know Christ. Look at verse 24. Paul explains, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. In verse 25, Paul makes his farewell clear that these dear friends would probably never see his face again. See, his ministry has concluded here in the east. God is calling him west, and he is uncertain that he will survive to see them again in the future. So again, I want to emphasize that this characteristic of Paul, why he, he emphasizes it himself. He seems to emphasize how he references in just this short section that he is preparing them for this heartfelt farewell. What is he communicating? Christians, especially pastors, need the whole plan of God, as the CSB reads, or needs the whole counsel of God. I'm reminded of the story from Kent Hughes, and he writes, Dr. William Evans, who pastored College Church from 1906 to 1909, was an unusually accomplished man. He had the entire King James Version of the Bible memorized, as well as the New Testament of the American Standard Version. Dr. Evans also authored over 50 books. His son Lewis became one of the best-known preachers in America and for many years pastored the eminent First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood. When Dr. William Evans retired, he moved to Hollywood to be near his son, and when Lewis was away, he would substitute for him. One unforgettable Sunday, Dr. William, as he was affectionately called, spoke on the virgin birth. All were amazed when he raised his Bible and tore out the pages that narrate the birth of the Lord. And as the tattered scraps floated down toward the congregation, he shouted, if we can't believe in the virgin birth, let's tear it out of the Bible. Then as he drove home his point, he tore out the resurrection chapters, the miracle narratives, than anything conveying the supernatural, the floor was littered with mutilated pages. Finally, with immense drama, he held up the only remaining portion and said, and this is all we have left, the Sermon on the Mount. And that has no authority for me if a divine Christ didn't preach it. After a few more words, he asked his listeners to bow for the benediction, but before he could pray, a man in the vast and sedate congregation stood and cried, No, no, go on, we want more. Several others joined in, so Dr. Evans preached for another 50 minutes. A church that is consistently fed the truth of the gospel will produce a people with an even deeper hunger ready for more. In this age of tolerance, people need to hear it all. They need to hear about God's love, his mercy, his grace, his wrath, his call to repentance, and our call to faith in Christ. We must proclaim the complete gospel. It is God's holy word that makes us wise into salvation. It shows us that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, that he died the death that we should have died, and he rose on our behalf, conquering the great enemy and sin and death, and now reigns and has promised to return. And he will receive anyone who comes in repentance and faith in him. Pastors must follow the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. We have the task of guarding the deposit, the word that was entrusted to us, and we guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. 
we must never be okay with a partial gospel being taught. We teach the whole gospel. We teach it all. See, one of my favorite things that I would hear before going up to preach on Sunday mornings came from a veteran pastor with over 30 years of pastoral experience. Whenever I would go up to preach, he would always shake my hand and he'd lean in with a smile and he would say, don't hold back now. I pray that after 30 years of faithful pastoring that I can echo the words of Paul that I did not withhold anything in my teaching. See, these six elements of Paul's character describe the heart of a faithful pastor, one who consistently guards his personal character. But this point is not limited to those who lead the church. For this reason, my, my, my first exhortation is emulate the heart of Paul. Emulate the heart of Paul. Understand that Paul's intent was not to brag about himself with over a dozen I statements. It was not to provide these elders with some secret formula for church growth. Paul was calling them to remember how he displayed his heart and his love for God, and he was calling them to action. In the same way, Christian, I'm talking to you guys, Christian, I want to challenge you to look at Paul's heart and emulate it. It might mean that some of you need to ask questions like these. Is my love for Christ visible to others the way Paul's heart was? Can I say to my friends, my coworkers, my neighbors, you yourselves know how I live to make Christ known? With the time that we have left, we're gonna kind of speed through this. The second point I want to address from this text is that under shepherds protect and provide for their sheep. How should pastors protect and provide for their people? Paul explains it. Paul explains that they guard themselves and their people by guarding them away from false teachers on the outside and guarding them from false teachers on the inside. Paul is not here, he's not only referring to self-accountability that these pastors have, but he's also speaking about mutual accountability. You know, this, this is something I've talked with some of you guys about. This is why I'm so thankful for our new church bylaws which seem to reflect a closer understanding of this passage, a plurality of elders, a team of pastors who lead the church and are equally accountable to one another. I agree with one scholar, Dennis Johnson, when he comments on this verse that pastors need to guard each other from error, from arrogance, and the flock from shepherd abuse. A plurality of elders is something that pastors need in order to better guide their lives and their teaching. And in that, they're able to present a more far-reaching protection and fuller provision for their sheep. So Paul, after expressing his heart to these pastors, he then explains the connection between guarding themselves and guarding all those in the church. Paul exhorts to them to pay careful attention to you, you, yourselves, and to all the flock. And while it was the church that identified, that recognized them, and selected them for this responsibility, it was ultimately God who selected them, God who equipped them and made them overseers in his church. And again, Paul follows this metaphor that the church is like a flock full of sheep, who needed the protection and careful provision that only their shepherd can offer them. In this metaphor, false teachers are referred to as dangerous, fierce wolves. And where the English Standard Version translates care for, other translations rightly use to shepherd. And when coupled with the word overseers, it emphasizes this intense, protective care that is required of pastors. 
And in fact, the grammar of that word, care for, means that the pastor must provide this intense protective care, both intentionally, it doesn't just happen by accident, but it's intentional and it's continual. Why? Because Paul is recognizing that this is God's church. Not just their church, it's God's church obtained with his own blood. The pastor's responsibility is to protect the church from false teachers and provide them the nourishment of the word that will guard them from attack. Notice how the, tr- the threats don't just come from the outside, but also from within. Paul explains that false teachers will come in from the outside, but men speaking twisted things will also arise from within. So for this, Paul offers a second exhortation to be alert ceaselessly. He again calls them to remember his example that they were very familiar with, that for three years Paul did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. See, my my heart breaks with Paul considering that everyone he admonished would have probably included the men that he personally cared for who are now drawing people away from the church with twisted teaching. Truly, this was a tearful memory for Paul. It was a tearful memory for them all. I love how one pastor words it. Paul punctuated his warnings with tears. Paul caps off these two emotional exhortations with this reminder. He is committing them to God and his word, which is powerful to save the lost and build up his church. Again, this is how pastors protect and provide for their people. They guard themselves and their people by guarding them away from false teachers on the outside and false teaching on the inside. Faithful under-shepherds, out of their commitment and love to their flock, protect and provide for their sheep. Christian, my second exhortation is this for you. You must receive the protection and provision eagerly. Sounds a little obvious, doesn't it? <laughs> because the under-shepherds protect and provide for the sheep, you must receive the protection and provision eagerly. This requires trust. This requires a built relationship. We'll talk more about that relationship and what is needed in this next point. But for now, understand that as pastors, Matt and I, our charge, our aim is to protect and provide for you. But if you can't trust our hearts enough to receive this care, you're willingly putting yourself and others in very, very dangerous territory. This is why it is so important for us to be together. Being together under faithful teaching of God's word, and it's by your pastors. This is why it breaks my heart that some of you maybe watching online or watching this as a recording at home can't be with us right now. You know, for some of you guys, it's health concerns, but for others, it's simply preference. Brother and sister in Christ, if this is you, I want you to know that protecting and providing for you is very different from afar. I look forward to the day that we can be together worshiping God for the first time in the same space. This is also why it breaks my heart that we still have a handful of people who come early to this campus for Sunday school, but they will never come to gather as the church for worship. This is heartbreaking for us as pastors to see sheep under our care who don't want to identify with the rest of the flock who don't see the need to be cared for. Christian, if you know of people that choose not to be here, talk with them in love to bring them back to the flock. Wandering Christian, if this is you, come back to the fold of God and identify with his people. Be his church in community 
Receive the protection and provision of your pastors eagerly. And the third and final point from this text is that under shepherds lead others to the chief shepherd. Paul demonstrates that it's not his authority, neither is it his example that he wants to lead these pastors to. It's the supreme authority and the person of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them that like Christ, he didn't minister for personal gain, coveting silver or gold or clothing. He wasn't self-serving, but he served others. He labored in order to help those who could not help themselves. He even leads them to know Christ through the way that he makes his departure, that they would not see his face again. It's remarkable to think the many connections we see with Paul's farewell to Jesus' farewell in the upper room. One pastor comments that there are many parallels between Paul's message here to the Ephesians and to Jesus' message in the upper room to his disciples when he announced that in just a short while they would see him no more and his departure would ultimately be for their benefit. In that regard, Paul echoed those words of Christ to his disciples. Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, we see his reminders his exhortations, his illustrations, his love put on display and his farewell to these pastors all pointed to the person and completed work of Jesus. This is the lifelong pursuit of every pastor's ministry, to lead others to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And for that, I want to offer my final exhortation. Christian, Build friendships that lead others to know Christ. Build friendships that lead others to know Christ. You might not be called to serve as a pastor, but you can still apply Paul's heart in the same way. He had deep Christian friendships with each of these pastors that led them to glory in Christ more and more, even when they were apart. Look at verse 36. Paul's farewell speech transitions to action. He knelt down and he prayed with them all. Some of the most cherished memories I share with Christian friends have been our times praying together, especially before we depart from each other. Because it leads us to this eternal truth and perspective that goodbye is never forever for Christian friendships. The text describes this scene with much weeping on the part of all. What an image that must have been. A group of grown men, ugly crying, tears spilt remembering their cherished times of ministering together, serving alongside each other, longing for each moment to just slow down a little bit more. Don't miss this. The grammar in this section implies that this was a very lengthy goodbye. They built friendships that led each other to know Christ and cherish Him more deeply. And as Paul finally saw a moment to tear himself away, they couldn't bear to say goodbye there, so they accompanied him to the ship. Christian, build friendships that lead others to know Christ. This is God's gift of Christian friendship that Christians often overlook and non-Christians will long for. This is the type of friendship that makes our farewell to one of our, or two of our own this morning, so bittersweet. This morning, we're, we're going to have a time as a church body to say farewell to Anna and to Jean. And I can't think of a better illustration for this final point. I thank God for the encouragement you two have been in my life and in this church's life. It has been my joy to serve alongside each one of you guys to pray with each one of you guys, and to do life with you all. I can confidently say that our friendship has led me to know Christ more and more. I pray that as you guys travel back to Spain, to Colorado, to Tennessee, that you guys would again build friendships that lead others to know Christ more and more. So Christian, turning back to you, Christian, build friendships like Paul built friendships. 
Friendships where the more and more time you spend with one another, the deeper they understand God's love, his character, and his love for the church. Just in conclusion, real quick, this morning, if you are not a Christian, if you are exploring the Christian faith, looking for understanding, I want to encourage you that, again, studying about God's church through his word, it will lead you to learn more about Christ. And I pray that you have witnessed not only Paul's great love for Christ and his church, but that you personally are being drawn to Jesus right now. If this is you, I want to urge you to turn to Christ because it's only in him that you will find the assurance of your salvation. You know, there were many things that were addressed to Christians this morning, but for you, I want you to see your great need for Jesus and his church. And if you have questions, don't hesitate. Matt and I would love to talk with you more after this. And Christian, as a few reminders as I close, you have seen the heart of the under-shepherds who serve the chief shepherd. Under-shepherds consistently guard their personal character. They protect and provide for their sheep, and they ultimately lead others to the chief shepherd. But Christian, I want to remind you that you have several responsibilities as a Christian, as a member of his flock, his church. Remember that you must emulate the heart of Paul. Ask yourself, is my love for Christ visible to others the way Paul's heart was? Can you say you yourselves know how I lived to make Christ known to your neighbors, friends, and coworkers? And if your answer was a regretful no for either of these, I want to remind you there's grace and that you have a great commission calling and a couple of pastors who wish to better equip you to be obedient to it. Christian, receive the protection and provision of the pastors eagerly. Develop a trust for those who have been entrusted to carefully and lovingly and fully protect and provide for you. And finally, Christian, build friendships that lead others to know Christ. Participate, experience God's gift of Christian friendship in such a way that the more and more time you spend with one another, the deeper each of you will understand God's love, his character, and his love for the church.